All right. Uh, my latest guest on the podcast, he goes by the handle Kung Fu Canuck. He writes for Pension Plan Puppets. How are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. Uh, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Right on. And so you had an excellent piece on, uh, on SB Nation's Pension Plan Puppets uh, outlining a draft lottery alternative for the NHL or, or frankly any other major pro sports league to consider. But before we dive into that, what did you think of this year's double draft lottery by the NHL? You know, it was, I thought, uh, a pretty good solution to a problem that maybe didn't need to happen in the first place. Obviously, it would have been a little bit easier if they just waited until the end of the play-in round to do the lottery. Uh, from a business perspective, I completely understand why they wanted to do it now. And I actually thought that the double lottery was kind of the correct way to do it. I like that they flatten the odds for the eight play-in teams that don't make it because it would you know, otherwise it would give a little bit too much of an incentive to the, you know, the Montreal's and the Chicago's to maybe, um, you know, I wouldn't say throw their round, but they certainly have more of an incentive to lose than say Toronto would or Pittsburgh. And I mean, I thought the results were quite interesting. Um, I, uh, you know, if you're, if you're team chaos, if you don't have a, a any skin in the game, I, I'm not going to lie. I was, I was kind of laughing. I feel terrible for, for Red Wings fans, even though we're supposed to be kind of rivals. I, I, I definitely get it. Uh, it would really, really suck to go through that kind of season and then have Bill Daly turn over a card with the NHL logo on it. But uh, you know, from just a, from someone who, who doesn't have a personal skin in the game, except for like a, you know, 6% chance, maybe I liked it. What, what did you think? I mean, I've been vocal about this. I thought it was amazing. One, I'm on Team Chaos. So as soon as I saw that NHL logo flip over, I started screaming, Chaos wins, Chaos wins. Um, I was on a, uh, I was on a, a Zoom with uh, a few of the folks in uh, one of my fantasy leagues. And so uh, our, our league draft is actually linked to the NHL draft outcome. So we had to do a whole chicanery to have things match up and we ended up at the second lottery we linked to the Ontario uh, lottery four ball thing that same night so it was I ended up being up till like midnight waiting for these these lottery balls to come out after the fact and it was uh, yeah it was it was all super fun uh, for me that way as an Oilers fan obviously like I like I don't know kind of still being in the mix but I'm not at all rooting for the Oilers to lose and wind up in getting that number one overall pick they've got it enough times they got the best player of the generation in Connor mcdavid by winning one of these things already so they don't need it it's time to win enough with the bullshit so hopefully they can beat chicago and that's not in play for me but it, like this was just it's so quintessentially nhl to have 16 teams both in play for the number one overall pick and in play for the Stanley cup. But for whatever reason, this season, it's, it's Schrodinger season. We don't know if it's happening or not. We don't know if it's dead or alive. So I, I love it. I, I guess it's easy for, for you and I to sort of be okay with the, uh, with, you know, these results. Cause we've benefited. I mean, listen, 
no one has anything on the Oilers uh, in terms of draft lottery lock, but, but as a Leafs fan, I can say at least we've benefited from the lottery somewhat. You know, we went through a nail biter of a season to, to in 2015-16 to get the, the highest odds and, you know, it, it happened for us. So I, you know, definitely have no, I have no complaints uh, from that specific perspective, but, but I agree. It's Schrodinger's season and I don't, it's just, it's interesting. It, it, it lets the drama kind of continue a little bit throughout the, uh, throughout the play-in rounds. And I, I mean, not to, I, I, this has been like the cry of conspiracy theorists, but I, I have to imagine, yeah, this is about what the NHL would have wanted. They would have wanted one, at least one of those uh, picks to be in play for the, for the play-in round. Right. And even if they don't like the fact that it seems like most people hate this thing, it's got everyone talking about it. And if you're in the zeitgeist, that's a good thing, right? No news is bad news. So I don't think it could have played out any better for the NHL, even if it's one of these unintended consequences that they, they didn't really think would happen. I'm definitely a lot more interested in the draft lottery now than I would have been if, let's say, like Detroit won it. Well, exactly. When the worst team wins it and they're as, as horrifically bad as the Red Wings were, it's almost like, oh, poor Alexi Lafreniere. He's, now he's got to go try to lift up this thing all by himself. Well, yeah, you have to imagine Alexi Lafreniere is really going to be watching these play-in rounds now. And not that I imagine he wouldn't be. The guy's probably lived and breathed hockey his whole life. But, uh, you know, Alexi Lafreniere, he's got a chance to be on a decent team. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's the most interesting possible outcome. Now he, you know, he gets to go to a team that forever under the the previous lottery formats would be stuck drafting in the early teens where you just, all you got to do is look at any draft model and you know, the likelihood of, of hitting on a star player in that range just isn't as high as it is at the top of the draft. So now these teams like, Minnesota that have been stuck in purgatory for forever suddenly they've got a shot at getting a star player and that could completely reboot things for them yeah it definitely uh it it adds a, a layer of drama that would not be there in any other season and you know it's funny and not that this is not true for a lot of other years like this was the most exciting thing to happen to the NHL in what three months four months yeah, it feels like it's been a year, but yeah, you're 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 bang on. You know, it's uh, it's it's one of those things where um, it's almost like a car crash a little bit. You kind of <laughs> yeah. just don't want to walk away. The even even watching the anguish, I I don't I don't do it sadistically. I just it's it's such a sports feeling to watch a Detroit Red, Ring, uh, Red Wings fan watching the draft lottery and then just that that look on their face. Oh God. <laughs> um, I, again, I, I do feel for them. I really do. Cause I guess I was upset enough when your team won the McDavid lottery. Yeah. And, like, and, and that's a, that's a funny one because I wasn't even glued into that lottery. I just assumed um, that because the Oilers had already had so much luck and they didn't have great odds that year. I just assumed they, they weren't really in play for it. Uh, so I'd kind of written it off. And then I was out on a forest fire. Like my buddy had some service on his phone and he's like, you'll never guess who won the lottery last night. And I rattled off like five or six 
different teams before he's like no Edmonton one and then I ran around the cabin that we were staying in and <laughs> was like we're gonna win the cup in the next five years and it's been five years so it's it's time oh yeah yeah this is uh this is this is uh definitely the year where it comes to, to uh, fruition for them I mean listen it, it's a fair point though right like with Edmonton even getting the best player in the world it's never quite the guarantee of success same thing with Toronto right I, I do think that Toronto is you know, I, I can't complain necessarily about the path that they've been on since then. They've made the playoffs every year. Edmonton has been a little bit more bumpy, but, you know, it, it's one of those things where even though, yes, there's no guarantee of success, but first overall pick, definitely better than the second overall pick. Definitely better than the 30th overall pick. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, and, and timing with this stuff is everything because some years you get an absolute home run. And some years, the second overall pick is just as good as the first overall pick. And some years, people don't even know what the hell's going on. And the best player gets drafted at like 25 or fifth or in the second round. But um, you're definitely increasing your odds if you can land yourself at the top of the lottery for a few years running. And it seems like there's, there's more elite talent coming up in recent years where getting the number one pick has been a distinct advantage. So what do you think about in a normal year, the current lottery format in general? Have we settled on the right balance now that the top three picks are in play? Like is, is the inflection point correct now? It, it depends what you're trying to balance, right? I think the NHL and like every sports league, they've always been trying to balance what you'd call competitive integrity versus competitive balance. So you want to make sure that the teams, no team is too far away from each other in terms of what they're able to do, their advantages, disadvantages. We also want to make sure that you're not artificially putting teams on the same level. So what the NHL has always had to deal with that with the lot with the draft is, okay, we need to get, we need to get players to the teams who need them. That's why the draft was instituted in the first place, right? In, in 1969, when it became universal, it was to give the incoming expansion teams the same shot at the young players that the original six teams had. And then you get to this point where, you know, you have teams outright throwing their seasons, like the Penguins did allegedly in, in 1984 and the Sanders did allegedly in, in 1993 for the top pick. So they introduced the lottery to make sure that, well, we need to, we need to, we need to throw some wrench into this. And then obviously when they changed it in 2016, it was because Buffalo fans were cheering for their team to lose in overtime, which is still a, an all time great moment. But, you know, from just those two interests, it's not a bad system for sure. Uh, it does definitely dissuade tanking. I don't think any team has outright thrown a season since 2015 because, frankly, it's not worth it. Throwing the season gets you a 49% shot at a top three pick. Um, so just on those two, I, I do think that it's a good system. I think what it fails to sort of do is it fails to allow for what I call agency. And that's agency for the team. and I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but also agency for the players themselves. The way that the NHL has dissuaded tanking is to put an element of randomness into it. Uh, not too much, obviously. There's still a weighted lottery. The team still can't fall more than three spots, but that's been their big save on this. So it's been to say, 
listen, you, it, it makes sense to tank in the sense that there are incentives and it gets you the best option or the best odds rather, but there's still just, it's still just a way to roll of the dice. So yeah. I, in a good system, it's fine. I, I think there are better ones out there though. Yeah, it kind of gets back to the Trevor Linden line about you can do everything right and then th this lottery happens and it's completely beyond your control and you, it just it just fate intervenes and it's it also reminds me of the um, the Phil Jackson line these things turn on a trifle and is there anything more trifling than using bingo equipment to decide where the best players go? Yeah, it's it's a shame, and I, I put this in the article, it's a shame that for like half the teams in the league, for their fan bases, the most exciting part of the season comes down to bingo equipment, as you just said. And you have zero control over the actual outcome. You can stack the odds, but I mean, it seems to me, Steve, I'm, I'm not sure you agree. This game is so random anyway, in, in terms of its outcomes, you know, the with the with the amount of of parity that's actually happened in the last 15 years you know i'm pretty sure down goes brown it has this has this line that even the games themselves have just become a series of weighted coin flips and some might like that some might not i i, I actually i don't think it's inherently a bad thing but it, it seems that there's just so much there's so much um uncertainty that's out of your control that uh, the future of your team comes down to ping pong balls yeah, I completely agree with you in terms of the games themselves. I don't know how you would change hockey, the game itself, to make it less of a of a 50-50 type proposition. But you just look at shot shares and stuff like that, and the best teams control maybe 55% of the shots. So just in that alone, you're thinking, oh, yeah, so it, you don't have the, the margins are – they're they're very slim and anyone who's done any sports betting whatsoever you know that the way to make money in hockey is you're betting on underdogs that get devalued to the point where you're getting like two to one odds so it's no longer you're thinking that most games are closer to a coin flip than what the odds are giving you are so that's how you make money betting on hockey not that i've ever done that <laughs> <laughs> If, you're, if your sponsors are listening to this? No, it's just the fact that I do bet on it and I don't make money. I, my, oh, yeah. Oh, gotcha. The amount of money that I put online about 10 years ago to bet on sports has literally, it's gone up, it's gone down, it's gone up, it's gone down, but it has stayed the exact same. So I've only lost money due to inflation. Right. And I actually think that's a very fair point about you're right. The, the teams that we hold up as being like some of the most dominant teams, if you go back, I think like the 2007, 2008 Red Wings, which is analytically one of the best teams had like a 58% shot share, which is insane. Like that was insanely, it's insanely high for the time. It's insanely high for now. You don't see that anymore now. Um, and obviously they won, but I mean, again, it's 58%. If you, you know, it, it doesn't even translate that much into a 50% chance of winning either. So it, it seems like the NHL kind of wants this though, don't you think? Like, it seems like the NHL really wants their games to be weighted coin flips. It, they want that outcome because it creates more, it creates a, a greater sense of fan engagement. You know, if you're a, 
if you're a otherwise not so good team, you're a bubble team in a less random outcome, you might not have any real interest because you might just know, well, it's done. But if it's this anything can happen scenario, um, especially with, with, you know, the loser point and things like that, I, I think that the league kind of wants it that way. Yeah, absolutely. You said it like the, all you have to do is look at the standings page and see that like three quarters of the league is quote unquote above 500 and realize that the NHL wants parity. Yeah. And I just, I don't necessarily think that's inherently a bad thing. Like it, you, this isn't entertainment product. You want more people to be entertained, but at the end of the day, you need to balance that with, okay, what are, ultimately, what are we watching, right? Are, are we watching a very entertaining game of, of skill with a little bit of chance and some good fortune involved? Or are we ultimately, you know, are we watching blackjack, essentially? Yeah, I think they've got to find a way to balance things more in the direction of the NBA, where the stars drive it a little bit more. Like certainly stars do drive winning. We've seen uh, guys like Patrick Kane and Sidney Crosby have won three cups in the cap era. But you also have some one-off teams that go on these really long runs. So to some extent, the, the star power does drive things, but it ultimately isn't as prevalent. There's been nothing more tantalizing for fans than knowing, okay, who's going to knock off the Warriors dynasty in the NBA. And this season, I, I feel like there's a little bit of buzz that's gone now that Kevin Durant has left and the, the whole team is injured. And so in the NHL, dynasties can really drive fandom for you. I'm sure people loved the idea of having to knock off the Islanders dynasty and then having to knock off Oilers dynasty while it was also a very high scoring and entertaining product like people were getting all the things that they wanted no one enjoyed the devil's dynasty in the mid 90s and early 2000s because it was driven by headshots and clutch and grab and they had a ton of skilled players but they were looking to slow it down and, and make the game as muddy as possible yeah and I, I think you do find, I think the analytics back this up, that you do find that when the game slows down, it becomes a coin flip more. The The variability decreases when there's just less happening on the ice. Sorry, I should say the, the variability, um, the, the, ver the uncontrolled outcomes increase a little bit when there's just less happening on the ice. You know, less shots means that the percentages are going to control more of the outcome than simple volume might. I, I think at least, and yeah, I agree. I didn't really enjoy mid nineties, early two thousands hockey from a aesthetic point of view. I liked early two thousands hockey because that's kind of when I started watching the Leafs and, you know, they had that, they had those, those good teams, but it, you watch it now. It's, it's hard to watch. I'm not going to lie. It's not, it's not entertaining. It's very, it's a slog. Absolutely. It is. I went back and I was watching uh, some of the, uh, oh God, what year is it? I think it's 97 when the Oilers knock off the Dallas Stars uh, in that exciting seven game series with the, the Todd Marchant overtime winner and Curtis Joseph standing on his head, just like flopping around like crazy. And the number of guys who could actually have a controlled zone entry 
and successfully do it. It was like one on each team. And then everyone else, they would skate it in over the blue line and then just kind of give themselves up slowly leaning into the boards and allow themselves to get hit because there was just no willingness or ability to go over the middle. Now that's unless one of the opposing defenders falls on his butt and you're, you know, then you can just go around him and, and get the overtime winner. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, especially because of the pandemic, you know, Sportsnet at the beginning of it was showing a lot of sort of these classic Leafs games and they're all from like 99 to 2004. And it's basically just, you know, Matt Sundin was one of those guys who, it was the one really entertaining thing to watch was occasionally you get a really big, really skilled guy and you would just watch him shake off three defenders who are basically hooking him around the neck. It'd be like guys like him or Eric Lindros or Mary Lemieux just clowning guys because they're clearly a cut above everyone else, but they were so few and far between more likely you're going to get, you know, a Peter Forsberg scenario where yes, he could do that but he's also going to get numerous injuries from the various assaults that happened to him on the ice. Yeah. Forsberg was going to be my example because no one had more shifts where he's just getting water skied on by five different guys and then still created something than he did. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I realized at the time, like, it wasn't just hooking back then. Like it's not hooking now where you kind of get your stick under a guy's arms. You're talking about like, it, it, you're talking about guys doing what they used to do to bad comedians to yank them off stage when they're, when they're flailing, they would get like the cane and wrap it around their neck. That was basically defending in the late nineties. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful image. So we, we teased it a bunch your alternative to the draft lottery certainly it takes a lot of randomness out of the system and as you said it hands agency back to both the teams and the players themselves do you think you can explain uh your draft lottery alternative your draft alternative really and uh and how you came up with it absolutely yeah um essentially the way it works is you actually still keep the draft. You just add something before it. And really what you're doing is you're replacing the first round of the draft. And what happens is that you take all the eligible players. So, you know, you still have your Alexis Lafreniere, your Quentin Byfield, your Jamie Drysdales. Um, what you give is you give each team a slot basically to sign one of these players to an entry level contract. Now, each team gets one in the same way each team gets, a, gets a, a pick in the first round. The way it works, though, is that instead of being a regular contract, these contracts would be laden with bonuses. So you're talking performance bonuses, which we currently have for, for ELCs. You can get Schedule B bonuses, which are things like finishing top 10 in goals or scoring a certain amount or having a certain, a certain amount of ice time we'd have to expand the actual amount of bonuses a little bit. They're capped right now at 2.85 million for this. You'd probably have to get up to four, four and a half million, but they would still be the same kind of individual performance bonuses. And the way it works is that the team who finishes last. So this case, it would have been the Detroit Red Wings uh, has the maximum amount of bonus to hand out in their slots. 
So the Detroit Red Wings have four and a half million dollars to hand out in in their bonus slot to you know whoever they sign. The next last place team, in this case the Ottawa Senators, they have slightly less. Uh, let's say it's four point two uh, million in in bonus slots, and then it continues to decrease until you get to the lowest amount. And you can fiddle with the margins here. Maybe you think it should be a little bit higher. Maybe you think that the actual decrease should be you know, a little bit uh, more dramatic. And essentially what you're doing is you're offering a financial incentive, or I should say rather, you're offering a financial advantage to the teams that finish lower to sign their players. So Alexis Sofrenier takes a look around and he's looking at all of his options and he says, well, I can sign with Detroit, who is really bad, or I can sign with, let's call it Montreal, because he's a, he's a, a proud Quebecer. And say I can sign with Montreal, who is clearly better, but I can get, what, twice as much money each year of my contract, potentially, with Detroit as I can with Montreal. And the other part of that incentive would be that the teams who need Alexis or Frenier are going to be the ones who can offer him the best opportunity to actually earn those bonuses. You know, if Alexis Lafreniere, let's let's use another example instead of Detroit, instead of Montreal. Let's say you put Alexis Lafreniere in the Leafs. He's a left winger. Um, the Leafs are pretty stacked at forward already. The Leafs have kind of a set power play time. They have a number of very high-profile forwards. So aside from what actual money the Leafs can offer him in bonuses, he's kind of less likely to hit all of those bon- all of those performance thresholds in Toronto than he is in Detroit. Of course, you know, some of this is maybe reversed on the fact that Toronto being a better team, maybe is going to be play with, playing with better players. But you would want to tailor the bonuses in such a way that you're actually placing the player where they need to go um, rather than just on the best or worst team. And to be honest, I, I came up with it originally, actually, when your team won the Conor McDavid lottery. <laughs> Um, I didn't have this weighted system. I did have this idea that it would be cool if you just got rid of the first round of the draft. You know, you keep the ELCs the way they are, but you kind of let the players decide where they go. And then I realized that you probably have to massage that a little bit because otherwise you're sort of really, really hurting the teams that need it. So this is kind of my way of trying to balance that competitive balance versus competitive integrity thing. But also instead of it just being random, we want to actually get the teams involved here. We want to have, we want the teams, the management to actually have a little bit, bit of agency to, you know, not only tailor their, their team in such a way as to be available for these players, but to convince them like, listen, this is why you should join our team. And the last thing about this in terms of incentive, in terms of um, things we want to do I argued in my article that you you actually want to give these players some some choice as well. Uh, it's not that's not going to be popular, I think, with everyone because realistically, player young player agency has never been a priority for hockey at all. Um, you know, we've had a universal draft for over fifty years. We have a ELC um, cap in terms of what players can sign for. We have a restricted free agency system that the league has never been interested in giving young players agency. But, you know, I tried to argue that uh, 
you know, your reward for being Alexis Lafreniere is to be, play on the worst team most of the time. You know, unless you have like a Tyler Sagan situation, but for the most part, you're, you're going to end up being on the worst team. And I don't know. I mean, I, if you're Alexis Lafreniere, is that what you want? Or would you rather sort of have this incentivized choice of, of where to play? I hope that explains it. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pick away at a few things and, and you pointed out like the most obvious response to an idea like this is that the the players the NHLPA is never going to go for it. But to be fair, the new CBA that they're they're discussing with the return to play does increase the available bonuses to players on their ELC. So it's it's not completely out of the question this notion of giving uh, players coming into the league a little bit more money and a little bit more uh, autonomy. I don't think the teams would ever want to give them full free agency because that leads to some unintended consequences. Um, the idea, it, it sounds a whole lot like the the bonus slotting structure in Major League Baseball and nowhere is tanking more rampant than in baseball so are we solving the problem of tanking at the end of the day i don't think that you can eliminate the problem of tanking necessarily i i i mean i think the gold plan is certainly a very creative way of doing that but the problem is that at the end of the day if your goal is to get players where they need to go um I don't think that you can do away with tanking or at least the incentives that promote tanking completely because at the end of the day, you still want to incentivize it so that players end up with the teams that need them most, i.e. the worst teams. Um, it, what it does is that it basically tries to temper it by saying, listen, there's no point in trying to lose because you're going to make yourself a less attractive destination. Yes, you'll give yourself, if you wind up in last, you'll give yourself slightly more money. You know, maybe you'll have $250,000 more in bonus potential to offer a player. But the amount of damage that you're actually going to do to get there is going to be a lot worse. And I don't think you would ever see fans cheering for um, their team to lose in overtime under this plan. Maybe some fans would because the incentives are there, but I think the incentives are light enough uh, that what you'd really be cheering for is just for your team to look attractive. And you'd be cheering for your general manager and your, your front office to be able to, you know, sell your player on, sell the player on your, on your city. At the end of the day, as hockey fans, do we not all secretly believe that our team is the one that is the one that every player wants to sign with? No, no one wants to sign in Edmonton. Uh, that's a very good point. I, 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 I did say I forgot about Edmonton. Edmonton is always the hard one here because it's, I always try and say that uh, teams always have something going for them. And um, let's just say Edmonton's a, a wonderful place, uh, I'm sure. I, I, it's, it's where I was <laughs> born. Yeah, so you know, it's a, it's a wonderful place. But I, listen, in fairness, you're right. I, I don't think Edmonton has a lot of, as just a, a, a neutral, we're just talking about where to live. It doesn't have as much going for it as, say, like even a, a place like Arizona. That being said, there are players who want to sign in Edmonton. It is, at the end of the day, still a Canadian market. 
it's not necessarily going anywhere. It's uh, affordable to live there, I think, right? That's, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's too expensive. I, I'm, not, I'm not from the Edmonton uh, Tourism Bureau, so I, I couldn't tell you for sure. But the other thing here too is you'd have to look at the state of the team at the time, right? You know, maybe Ken Holland is going to be better at convincing someone to sign under the amount of bonus that they can offer than, let's say, John Chaka. And I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't know to what extent the bonus system in baseball tries to incentivize or, or does actually incentivize tanking. In this case, I just, I think that the incentives here are too weak. I, I think that you would make yourself look pretty bad if it ever looked like you were trying to lose. Like no one's going to sign with a team that's trying to lose. I mean, Ex except every every player that signs with a bad team coming out of their ELC because they have no choice. Well, exactly. Yeah. At the end of the day, <laughs> every team's still going to get one, right? But there, I mean, yeah, you could you could really try and lose, and then you're going to be stuck with the ones who are willing to go to a team that actually is trying to lose. I, I'm not going to deny it's not, I don't think you're ever going to find a perfect system. Um, and this one does have that drawback that you simply cannot get away from is that in any free agency, there's going to be some markets that do better than others. Um, but that's also just true, I think, of hockey as well. You know, there are still, there are still, even with a triple cap league, with a universal draft and a RFA system and UFA at, at 27, there are still teams that just seem to systemically have less advantages than others. And yes, I listen, in fairness, some people do want to change that. But I, I think that it's, you're still looking for that balance, you know, competitive balance versus competitive integrity um, conflict. Well, like I said, I, I love the idea. So that's why I'm interrogating it to, to see ways that we can, we can massage it to maybe make it, uh, make it better. And if it, if it ever were to gain traction, that would be, that would be something that would be super interesting. Um, Wouldn't it be more fun? It could be. So that's, does this undermine some of hockey's biggest spectacles? love it or hate it, the, the lottery drew eyeballs and so does the draft or at least the first round of the draft does. So if you're turning round one of the draft, this huge event that the NHL puts on into a week of free agency, is that going to draw the same attention? Maybe it draws more attention. I'm not sure, but it, it undercuts what the draft has become for the NHL, which is a, a huge, a huge platform and spectacle. I agree that the draft is always fun to watch. And, you know, one thing about it, and, and I keep coming back to him because he's one of my favorite writers is Dan Grover's Brown always says the best part about the draft is it's the only time that all the GMs get together in a room. And that's why you end up having the most deals. So whatever we do here, we should make sure that the GMs still have to spend two days in each other's vicinity uh, to make sure that we can still get trades. I, I, I think the, the reason I, I would actually prefer the week of free agency is think about how much fun the week leading up to free agency is the sort of the, the tension, the mystery, like the, the John Tavares sweepstakes, which again, I'm biased on. So let's, let's go back to the Artemi Panarin sweepstakes of last year. I mean, that was fun to watch, you know, the last minute decision, the, 
the sort of posturing and positioning between all the suitors. You don't get to watch it play out live necessarily, but I do think it adds this element of drama that you actually don't find in the draft. The, the most dramatic thing that might happen in the draft, it would be that, you know, someone ends up getting picked way later way more, or way earlier than, than normal. Um, I got to stop you there. The most exciting part of the draft is I have a trade to announce. <laughs> you know what? I, I actually really like that. And I, I didn't even consider that. So whatever we do here, we should make sure that when the findings are announced, it's still live and make sure that we still have Gary there to do his thing. Because you're right. That actually is the most exciting moment of any draft. Uh, is is Gary doing his thing? Right, and and your your process still has a draft, so people would still be getting together. It's just the best prospects we wouldn't be in it. So I wonder if it wouldn't be the same the same festivity as it would be. And listen, I think that's fair because what we're coming back to is it's an entertainment product. You know, you do want a spectacle. I think you can make it a spectacle. I mean, look at the look at Vegas's expansion draft. It all that was was just an announcement. It wasn't like Vegas wasn't making the decisions right there on the board. They had they had figured it out, you know, a day or two before they actually announced it. So you could still do something like that. It'd be a little, you know, they'd take a little bit of attention out of it. But I, I think you could still make it a spectacle for sure. Yeah, I, and we've referenced the NBA uh, on here before, and NBA free agency seems to go on the entire summer, and all that does is just keep the NBA in the zeitgeist as this, I don't know, they're not quite a 12-month-a-year sport, but they're an 11-month-a-year sport, and I know it would ruin Bobby Margarita's summer plans, but having the NHL not basically shut its doors for two to three months out of the year would do wonders for the league. So if they had a whole week of prospect free agency before the draft, and then they had NHL team free agency after that, that could be, that could be fireworks, right? You would have all the insiders tweeting, Oh, it looks like this player's leaning this way. And as long as no player does like a, a LeBron style decision, it's, it's all going to go over quite well, but they could do stuff like the, the players going to NCAA colleges in, in football and basketball, they could do their signing day things and all that stuff would be, Oh, and now we go live to this player. So instead of it being one big event, it would be something drawn out over a week that constantly has hockey in the zeitgeist. So I'm not saying it's necessarily a negative. There could be positives to going that way instead. Yeah, I, I do think it's uh, I personally, I, I I'm a, a big fan of the transaction part of hockey. I, I don't think there's anything more exciting than, you know, like a crazy trade or, you know, the John Tavares sweepstakes. That was so much fun. It was a lot more fun for me as a Leaf. Probably not so much fun if you're an Islanders fan. But I, I, I have to imagine, like, did you find that entertaining as well? Just watching, like, news reporters staked out at, uh, at, at his agent's office in, in L.A. and trying to read the body language of, you know, Kyle Dubas coming out of the, uh, coming out of the building. Oh, it was phenomenal. Never has bedsheets been more exciting. Well, that should actually be the rule is that every player who signs has to tweet out some sort of like 
childhood photo that explains why they signed with that team. Uh, I, I know that that doesn't quite work with all the incentives I put down, but we'll have to figure out a way to make it work. And then like, it's just have, like just one player ends up tweeting out a photo of him as a kid and he's just all blinged out with a big dollar sign chain. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I signed here. As a kid, I've always been, uh, I've always been a big fan of the most money. Yeah. <laughs> Even when I was when I was working my paper route, it was I always gave better service to the houses that tipped. Yeah, uh, just some yeah, Ayn Randian philosophy about uh, about drafting. I love it. I love the idea. So, how many teams would have these draft slots available to them? Would it be all thirty-one or thirty-two once Seattle's in the mix? You know, it's interesting. You you could do it one of two ways, right? Is you could do just the 16 non-playoff teams or you could do all 32. My original idea was for all 32. There's room to massage it where maybe you even have a large drop-off after 16. Like, let's say, again, we're playing with numbers here, but let's say, um, you know, the 16th worst team, the, the one, the last one that would otherwise be in the lottery, this is when you actually have 32, they have, let's say, $2 million in bonus money. Maybe the playoff bonus uh, slots start off at like $1 million. So there's a, a large cliff at that point, just to really drive home the idea that, you, yeah, maybe you don't want the Stanley Cup champions. You, you don't always want them getting the first overall pick, but you also don't want to close the door to it either. The other options, of course, you know, they don't, uh, they don't have it at all. The only issue I could see with that would be you as, let's say it's Alexis Sofrenier and it's this year, he could just choose not to sign with any of those 16 teams. If he really, if he was, if he was like, listen, I, I would rather go to a playoff team where I don't get to control my fate than sign with any one of these right now. So I think the logical way to do it would be all 32 teams. Which means, yes, you might get the Stanley Cup winning team have the first overall, first overall pick, which in fairness has happened before. And it sucked for decades because that guy <laughs> would be a player. No doubt. Um, my concern would be then it, what happens, do, are players drafted in the, the new first round or what would normally be the second round and later, would they be eligible for any of these ELC bonuses? And wouldn't a player who can't get a very good bonus just refuse to sign with a playoff team if all he can get is a million? And he could go into the regular draft, not sign for a couple of years, and then be like, well, I'm not going to sign unless I get my, my full bonus structure. Well, he, that person could. I, I guess you would have to make sure that the – a player who's drafted, I mean, I guess we call it drafted in the second round, drafted in the first round under this one, you would want to make it so that they can't earn more bonuses than a player who's drafted, who's, who's signed in one of these slots, which in fairness, has there ever been a second round draftee who's earned Schedule B bonuses? I, if there are, I can't think of many off the top of my head. So you could simply say that everyone drafted in the second round is um, – either not eligible for Schedule B bonuses or simply teams don't have to give them out, you know? But I, I mean, I take your point. You, you might actually have to make sure that, that uh, you know, 
no no draftee can earn more in bonuses than um, someone who's actually selected because yeah that would give someone the incentive to simply not sign. People also may simply not sign. That's always a possibility. They might say, "Listen, I'd rather just take my chances in the draft." In which case, take your chances in the draft. That's fine. I, you know, if if a player wants to do that, that's fine. We I'm not sure specifically what incentives they would have to because. I can't, I'd imagine a player would rather control where they go, have some choice over the matter and earn more money, but you know, they simply would be free to opt out or simply some recent examples of players getting bonuses outside of the first round guys like Adam Fox and Dominique Kubalik, who uh, they were, they were later round picks and they ended up getting traded because they didn't want to sign with, the teams that drafted them and they ended up getting some kind of a bonus structure to sign on uh, where they did. And I assume guys like uh, Kirill Kaprizov, whenever he comes over, he's going to get like a max bonus structure and stuff like that. So it would, it would reduce the incentive for players in those positions to come to the NHL if they do all this work outside of the NHL to boost their stock from what it was when they were 18, 19 years old and drafted. And then they, they might as well wait until they're 27 and earn money in other which, leagues. Yeah. Which, you know, they kind of have an incentive to do already in some ways. If you are a player who prioritizes choosing where you want to play, you actually do have an incentive to outweigh the expiration of your draft rights, which Adam Fox kind of did. Adam Fox really called this shot. He was drafted by Calgary in the third round. He played in college for a while and he was traded to Carolina. He, it's, I, I don't know the full story, but it seems like Carolina never really got that close to getting him under contract. It seems like he kind of called his shot going to the Rangers. And I mean, again, players are free to do that right now. If you, if you want to forego getting into the NHL early. Yes, you can absolutely pick where you want to go. You can negotiate with whichever team wants to offer you that contract, how many bonuses you get. Um, you know, what this would be doing, what, 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 my, what my plan was is to sort of offer that same leverage, but to start playing immediately rather than having to wait until you're 21, 22. I think I'm not sure how old Kaprizov is, uh, but I think the draft rights last a little bit longer for uh, for players drafted out of Europe, right? Yes. Yeah, the NCAA you get until your fourth year, and then but with uh, with the other players, they have it till like you're 27. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, the, the whole idea that I'd come up with was trying to just reform some of the incentives. You know, I think I I, I even put this in the article, which is that you let's not get too lost all the time in in something in like the exception to the rule, right? You know, what is the, it's kind of like what we were even talking about. Is the first overall pick always going to be the best player in the draft? No, absolutely not. Is the first overall pick clearly the most valuable asset in the draft? Yes, it is. So is, is Adam Fox, you know, let's, let's say Adam Fox is, um, you know, one of our players here, is he all is is a guy like him always going to outweigh his draft rights? Probably not. Uh, I, not probably not by choice. We have seen it. Um, you know, we saw it with uh, with with Jimmy VC as well. 
sometimes it does happen, but it's kind of, it's a story when it happens. So um, I, in fairness, it's also interesting. It's also fun when it happens. Oh, absolutely. I'm just, uh, I'm just here poking some holes and um, we, we continue to, it's uh, yeah. it makes the argument stronger. So, so speaking of college guys, all those players who would be first round eligibles, like we see tons of college guys go in the draft lottery and even in the top five and they would lose their NCAA eligibility. And a lot of them aren't ready to make the leap to the NHL, but they would be drafted by teams that finished near the bottom of the draft. Like a couple of years ago, it was Colorado. They had the worst season ever and they lost the lottery. They picked fourth. They got Kale McCarr. It all worked out for them. But under this format, he wouldn't have signed with them. He would have gone to college and waited. Would it just be the case that he just wouldn't be part? Like, would you have to eliminate all NCAA bound players from being in the draft so that the, the, the second round, the new first round, like all the teams at the top of that don't just collect all the best college players? I mean, I guess you could think about it in two ways, right? There's one under the system, you can sign the contract, but like any other ELC, it can slide, right? So I, I don't foresee any specific reason why under this system I proposed, you couldn't sign someone to one of these contracts and simply have them wait or, or secure their rights under the understanding that they will have those bonuses and then simply wait to have them sign it. You could defer the actual implementation of the contract. I, I do think that we can allow for that possibility. The other option is maybe, yes, you would not see college guys get signed to one of these slots, but they could still get actually drafted um, in, in the new first round, previous second round. So, you know, it's not like Kale McCarr gets to simply completely opt out of the draft. If Kale McCarr refuses to sign with any team, another team can still scoop up his, his, uh, his rights in the actual draft itself. Yeah. Uh, so my concern with um, that would be, would that give you more incentive to tank? Cause now I get the most money to play with and I'm going to draft the best college guy at the top of the draft. And some years there's a huge overlap there. So if you're Colorado in 2000 and what was that? 17? 17, I think. Yeah. You could give the most money to Nico Heeshier or whoever you thought was worthy of that. And then you could also draft Kale McCarr and well, that would create a super team, which we indicated that might also be a good thing, but I'm not sure it's creating the parity that NHL wants. Right. And I mean, I guess the question is, and I understand this is a little bit different with NCAA guys, how valuable is a guy who's two years away, right? You don't, I think there's a reason you don't always see those guys go high in the draft. You know, most guys who go fourth overall, you're probably not more than a year away, right? Like I think, you know, I think about a guy like Mitch Marner. Um, so I'm not saying Kale McCarr was a reach, but I would imagine that would just be a consideration in, in the, uh, in the actual sort of processes if the guy is valuable enough he'll get signed and if he gets signed and if all that happens is he someone secures his rights and they say okay you know let's say it's the let's say it's the fourth lot he gets sort of signed in that fourth slot right so all they've done is they've secured his rights 
and they're going to say, okay, when you come to the NHL, we're going to give you the you know fourth most bonus money or whatever it is. So I guess the 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 market sort of would dictate that a little bit. Um, I take your point though, like it would be a little bit hard to think about what the mark, how that market uh, demand would shift for guys who you know are going to be a couple years away. Like it yeah, would be interesting what happens with 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 certain you know European players or especially Russian players who maybe might stay a little bit in the NA, in the KHL, but that's already kind of a it's already kind of a draft consideration, right? Wasn't this kind of a consideration with Vancouver's pick last year? Um, Pod Colson, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there was, in addition to whatever concerns there was about his actual game, there was always some concern about, you know, is, is the guy going to stay in the KHL? Yeah, that's, that's been a thing for, I don't know, since, since McGillney broke the barrier, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I think, you know, maybe this is a bit of a cop-out answer, I think it's one of those things where you do let the market decide a little bit and you know, I, I, you're, you still get some advantage in drafting the second round, but essentially you're getting the 33rd. If you finish last, you're going to get the 33rd most valuable player. But not, uh, not necessarily if all the NCAA guys just opt out of the sign process because they want to go that, that route. And my, and my big concern is I actually, as much as the NCAA as a huge entity, kind of sucks it seems like a really good developmental model for prospects that are that one or two years away it's like they get lots of time in the weight room they get to they get to go mingle with their peers in in cities and stuff like that it gets them a bit more cultured like it's it's it seems like a really really strong developmental choice for players who are a year or two away and if they have to go into the second round, but we have to penalize second round bonus structures, then they would, they would get less money. And so you might force these guys into signing these contracts and then going into the NHL developmental model where the AHL is not a place for a player who's a couple of years away. Right. Well, maybe you could actually have some sort of carve out where, you know, you can allow for contracts where it's based on you do actually have to keep them in that developmental model because i agree as much as the ncaa you're right as an organization is problematic to say the least i i do think the college model is uh is a good development model um i i don't think that there's any reason that you couldn't try and put something in there where you would maybe try and lessen the decrease of a college player's demand simply because they need to defer but, you know, I do keep coming back to the idea that, uh, and, and maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm just a little bit ignorant of, of what the actual current incentives are. If, if your guy is two years away, maybe that's a reason for his draft stock to fall as well you know, under the current system. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that that always takes place. Lots of guys get taken at the very top of the draft, even knowing that they're going to be a couple of years away just because of that that projection like Kyle Turris he went number three even though everyone knew that he was way far away from from filling out and and being ready for the NHL and as it turns out he was probably like five or six years away Um, but just you know kind of the way that draft worked it being one of the weaker drafts of the uh, of the mid to late 2000s he ended up being a lottery pick and and Kale McCarr another one you weren't sure what you're getting out of the AJHL but he sure did look dynamic and, and Colorado 
uh, reap the rewards for drafting him. And as it turns out, he was only a couple of years away um, from, from making a big impact, but he might've been three or four uh, depending on how things went for him. And maybe, maybe he only gets to be a, a couple of years away instead of three or four because he goes the NCAA route. And that just happens to be the best model for him. Yeah. I mean, I, your point is well taken actually about the, you know, the not wanting to damage sort of that development. And this is actually something I heard some feedback on this, which is that, are you, are you incentivizing players or are you incentivizing teams to rush players, right? Because of the, because of the bonus structure in place. The only thing I would say is that I would, I would hope that, you know, the team, would say, listen, we will sign you to, we're going to sign you to this contract. That doesn't mean that you're going to be playing next year. Right. The, in fairness though, the player could insist as a part of signing the contract. No, I do want to play next year. It's something that I think teams would have to figure out. Right. They currently have a little bit of that already with within the bounds of actually being able to negotiate an ELC in the sense that you can put schedule A's and schedule B's in there. If you really wanted to, there is still some back and forth and some leverage that the player does have to sign ELC, even with the team that actually owns his rights. So I, I would think that this introduces maybe a different extent of some of those incentives and some of that leverage, but you know, I, I guess you would want to make sure that this doesn't completely upend um, the developmental model. Yeah, for sure. And th this kind of leads me to another one of, uh, of, of my questions. Are we improving the agency of the 17, 18 year old players themselves, or are we turning some of their advisors and agents into some of the most powerful people in the industry? Well, it depends on what you mean by power, right? Because that the big reason here, the, the big thing I want to keep in here is you're still capping the amount of money that they can get. And I don't know how, I, I'm sure this varies from agent to agent and advisor to advisor. I'm not always sure how it works with ELCs in terms of what their cut's going to be, but you're only able to negotiate within the, you're, you're able to have basically a, conf, uh, a, a negotiation within strict confines, right? So do the, do the incentives for the agents necessarily change between their, you know, if it's Alexa Sophrenia this year, well, he still can figure out if he wants to go to a team with the most amount of money, or if he wants to go to a team with less money, and maybe some slightly, you know, maybe has other reasons to go there. He believes more in the management or anything like that. I mean, do you see a specific scenario in which the advisor might be, or the agent might have maybe a conflict with the player's interests? Uh, definitely. Like once you get down towards those entry-level deals where the bonus would be a little bit less, then you could definitely have teams and agents cooking up these ideas where I'm going to, steer my guy towards this situation, even if it's not going to be good for him at all, so that I can get him a little bit more money, or I'm going to steer him to this situation because we're also negotiating another deal for another guy. Right. And I mean, is your, is your concern about that? Cause if we compare it to 
current free agency, I mean, we have that as well, right? You, you could have the same conflicts that, that exist there where, you know, do you tell your guy to go to, do you, to take a little bit less money because you have a good relationship with that, that team? Or do you tell the guy, listen, go to the worst team with more money because it's a bigger cut? I mean, I guess in this case, you, you rightfully maybe fear that agents have a little bit more influence over an 18-year-old or 19-year-old than they would over a guy who's 27 and has been in the league for a while. That's, me, a, right? that's exactly my concern is, is the age difference, right? Like now you're, you're throwing, you're giving all this, this power and freedom to someone who probably doesn't know how to use it. So who's in their camp and who's going who's gonna to use it uh, well and who's going to abuse it? We're a long ways away from the days of Alan Eagleson, but I, I think there's just, there's a lot of potential for, for abuse there. Yeah. And I mean, Eagleson, you're right. It's a very good story because uh, obviously his, his first client was Bobby Orr and Bobby Orr is really one of the last guys to have the choice that I'm proposing for certain players here, which is you pick the team that you're going to start in the league with. Um. I, I mean, I guess it's just the the perils, you're right, of giving any 18-year-old or, or, you know, any, even a 21-year-old sort of that, that agency is they are going to be guided by other people, you know, their parents or their families or, or as you said, advisors. I mean, I think it's one of those things I'll come back to where you're maybe exacerbating some of the, some of the different interests, you know, yes, you're, you're, you're exacerbating that problem or you're, you're giving a new dimension to that concern, right? That agents might have undue influence over their clients' uh, wishes. All you're doing is introducing another decision where they might have it. I don't think that there's anything to be done to change the fact that agents have a lot of influence over their clients. I guess the question is you'd have to hope that the agents who exercise it poorly are generally not the ones that people recommend. I don't know agent a lot of agents personally. I couldn't tell you. I would imagine that you know, much like uh, you know, I much like lawyers. You have to hope that uh, a lawyer who's working on contingency is still looking out for your best interests as the clients rather than just their own. You know, you are putting a little bit of I guess trust in that system. Yeah, and to be completely fair, I'm not sure that the system that we have now where players can be drafted by any team and then they have all this uh, this influence over the players is the better system either because like we talked about, uh, players going pro too fast, players getting rushed, that sort of thing, the NCAA model potentially being better, um, giving giving more power to the agents may not necessarily be a bad thing depending on the agent versus the organization and speaking of organizations we saw it this year with the arizona coyotes how the hell are we going to prevent tampering with a system like this or is that just a feature rather than a bug well i guess here's the question what could you do with tampering in this situation right no one is going to say with free agency, the problem of tampering is that, you know, let's say it's Artemi Panarin, right? Well, because he's, um, you know, that was that was the big free agent last year. And Columbus is trying to woo him. Columbus has exclusive negotiating rights. 
Well, the reason you don't want tampering is because, you know, you don't want teams sort of jumping in line to, to get their turn to, to say, hey, listen, we've, Columbus is supposed to be the one who can offer you the contract now, but, you know, we'll let it slip that if Columbus is offering you $11 million a year, we're willing to offer you 11.5. In this case, you, you're, you have a lot of guys coming in fresh, right? Um, it, no one owns their negotiating rights. So teams might say, uh, listen, you know, let's say I, I'm trying to think it's this year, who's sort of in the running. Let's say it's LA, you know, and they say, Hey, Alexis Safranier, we're interested in you. Well, what's LA going to say other than we'll give you the most bonus money that we would other, that we can give you depending on our draft spot. I think every team's going to say that, right? So yeah. you, you won't prevent tampering, but I just don't think that the effects of tampering would be as harmful as they are in the NHL, which, I mean, let's be honest, I always thought that the rules about tampering were a bit, the concerns were a little bit overblown, uh, given the reality. It's always seemed a little bit naive to think that, you know, if Artemi Panarin didn't hear that the New York Rangers were, were interested, that he would have, you know, his head would have been in the sand and would have been like, oh, wow, this is, I, I can't believe it. This is news to me. I can't believe the Rangers would be willing to, uh, would be willing to take me on as a free agent. Now I'm definitely not going to sign with Columbus. I, I have to think that he probably had some inkling, you know? I'm, I really don't care about that kind of tampering. I'm more concerned about, um, and maybe it's not necessarily even a bad thing, but these teams starting with kids when they're 12 and starting to work them. Hey, you know, the, the 2028 draft is, is not that far away. Here's a stick, here's a bag. And then like, what comes of that cesspool? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. I didn't even consider that with like the, um, you know, the uh, get, get them started early, get their childhood love going. I, I guess you could try to put in rules about, you know, what teams can do for, for sort of developmental leagues. I'm not sure. Are there rules now about what individual teams can do for, let's say like the CHL or, or NCAA franchises? I'm, I'm, I'm actually a hundred percent not sure. Yeah. I'm not positive on that stuff either. I just know that like with the coyote situation, they were getting guys to do like even just like workouts or, or whatever it was that they were doing. And that was stepping over the line. So I can only imagine if they're, you know, giving them sticks or other financial incentives or, or whatever it is, like NCAA, we, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the good that they offer, but the NCAA has been rife with this sort of manipulation. And maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing because a player getting paid to go to a college where they're just abusing him for his, his services, essentially, mining him to make millions of dollars well if that player actually gets paid for some of those services and maybe that's a good thing but i just wonder if there isn't some negative consequence to all that yeah you you probably have to have some version of the ridiculous bagel rule right where you know the toronto maple Leafs can't host a luncheon for for all those players and give them anything more than than a bagel with cream cheese I think that's the rule. I might be misquoting it, but you know, the one where it's, you know, if it's anything better than that, it counts as a gift. And I think obviously the reason that rule is a little ridiculous in the NCAA is as you pointed out, it kind of just depresses their earning power as uh, as actual athletes here. I think it might be a little bit more important because you're getting them to sign an actual contract for money. So you're right. You would not want teams to sort of be able to 
give out little goodies or certainly if you did, you would want to make sure that it's closely monitored and that the Toronto Maple Leafs aren't giving out trips to Disneyland while the Ottawa Senators are giving out, I'm sure, what would you, what do you think Eugene Melnick would try and give players to incentivize them to sign with the Senators? Uh, probably like a, a temporary tattoo. <laughs> yes, I could see that. Nothing too fancy, obviously, but yeah. And uh, not even the Senator's logo, like of his face. <laughs> they're all just going to be standardized. You get your packet, you get your three, you get Melnick in three different poses. Yeah. <laughs> One of them getting interviewed by Mark Borieski. Oh, God. Um, but I, I actually, I do think that that's a, a very fair point. You would actually would have to have very strict enforcement mechanisms, which, you know, they, they have now, right? There's a reason why the Coyotes are in big trouble uh, for just hosting workouts, which funny enough, ended up being a much bigger deal this year, I think, rather than if it happened in any normal year, right? Because yeah, this year because they, no one's getting it. Yeah. So it, it turns out, it turned out to be a lot bigger of a deal. And I, listen, I'm all for that. You know, uh, I, I don't think that there's any, I don't think that there's anything wrong with sort of saying like, listen, we're, we're going to try and make this a little bit better for the players. That does mean that you guys are going to have to play a little bit more by the rules. Um, because yeah, of course, there are going to be teams that are that would take full advantage of that. I mean, you're you're right. You you could have teams just going to like, I don't know. When when did we know about Connor McDavid? When he was probably when he was like 12, right? Oh yeah. I like, mean, those those people knew Connor McDavid were huge. Yeah. So, Leafs just like buy him a house when he's like 12. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think yeah, I guess like the the concern wouldn't be for the player the concern would be for the balance of the league because the best teams would have this ability to kind of play outside the cap system. Mm -hmm. I, you would hope, and I mean, in terms of incentives, I would hope that the, the money incentive with the weighted bonus would at least be enough to counteract anything that you get in terms of monetary value from, from a team who did try and break the rules. Right. You know, even the Leafs, if they were to, um, you know, flex some financial muscle and they bought, let's say they even bought Connor McDavid a car, you know, when he was 12, which would, I would hope be against the rules. And, you know, under my system, it would be, well, he's still going to make, you know, he's still going to make $2 million more a year minimum in, in uh, Detroit, if, if it was uh, the case this year, than he would with the Leafs in his first few years. So, um, but, you know, listen, it, you probably would have to check for bed sheets too, right? Absolutely. There's, there's no, there's no stone that the Leafs wouldn't turn over. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's, it's something that you're not going to be able to get around whenever you have free agency, there's always some sort of, there is always some form of fear of favoritism. Right. And I mean, I get this accusation quite rightly from, from, from people that, you know, in fairness, I'm just a, a lease fan and, you know, I am, and I'm not going to lie. The, Toronto has some advantage here. I try to make it so that that is not the only thing that you're actually worried about. I, I do think that there's a decent argument for, from both a rights perspective and also just an entertainment perspective to having this kind of free agency. But 
yeah, teams would try to flex those advantages. Uh, absolutely. Now I'm just, I'm kind of stuck thinking of the, all the funny things that you would see the Leafs doing with Connor McDavid in like new markets. Like they would, they would probably just buy the whole town. Yeah. And I, I'm surprised they, they haven't already been doing this stuff, even just to gear up for his, uh, his free agency in what, six years from now? Uh, I think so. Yeah. When you signed that con, it, it kicked in 2018. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. When our other hometown boy leaves, we'll get our new guy. Yeah, uh, hopefully the Oilers have a couple of cups by then. See, everyone would win. Yeah, Connor would get all the money, so that's fine. I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, my man, Kung Fu Canuck, we, uh, we picked way more meat off the bone of this topic than I thought. Like I said, I love the article. I love the idea. This was fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for being very generous with your time. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, no, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Kung Fu underscore Canuck. Uh, you can find some of my writings on uh, pension plan puppets. They, they don't ask me to write for them, I should say. I, I do it anyway. And, and I, you know, there are sometimes they're nice enough to actually post the articles themselves. But uh, that's where you can find me. Um, and Steve, thanks so much for having me on. This was great. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please give us a like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And, man, wasn't this a fantastic episode. Kung Fu Canuck, he goes by a pseudonym, but that's just fine by me. Make sure you check out his article on draft lottery reform. I've linked to it down in the show notes. It's must read for following along with uh, with what we talked about today. And I thought it was a, a tremendous thought experiment. Almost certainly something that you'll never see the NHL do, but that doesn't mean we can't keep striving and thinking about these things. Um, if for nothing more than entertainment. Like I said, great episode, uh, great article to read, so please check that out, and y'all have a good one.